delighted to be here today to talk about my new book, Beyond Chinatown. And today, I'd actually, I'd like to do two things. The first is to give you a broad overview of the book, the topics, the issues raised. And second, to fast forward from the first chapter to the last couple of chapters, to look at the 21st century challenges Southern California faces in terms of ensuring water reliability. We'll begin with the broad overview drawn from chapter one. I don't know whether these are epigraphs or epigrams. An epigraph is a quotation at the beginning of a book. An epigram is a witty, ingenious, or pointed saying tersely expressed. I hope that these are both. Water is the lifeblood of Southern California. The Metropolitan Water District, 1931, as they asked the voters of Los Angeles and 12 of its suburbs, 1931, as we were sliding, as we used to say in Washington, into deep Sununu, asking them to add the equivalent of 13 Proposition 13s to their property bill, 13% of assessed valuation for the Colorado River Aqueduct, then costing $220 million, 84% of them said yes. Can you imagine that happening today? The second epigraph, epigram, if the wars of this century were fought over oil, the wars of the next century will be fought over water. Ismael Sergaldin, the World Bank Vice President and Chair of the Global Water Partnership, 1995. Beyond Chinatown is a study of the complex and contentious politics of water growth and the environment in semi-arid Southern California. This sprawling megalopolis is now the world's eighth largest economy, encompassing the five-county Los Angeles metropolitan region as well as the San Diego metropolitan area. This is a seemingly inhospitable locale for 20 million-plus inhabitants to live and work, with millions more coming. Here, annual rainfall resembles the Middle East, averaging 15 inches or less along the coast and 10 inches or less inland. Local water supplies can support only a fraction of the current population. For this parched coastal plain to grow into a mighty civilization, it had to imaginatively find and tap, even ruthlessly, new water supplies. The story of Southern California's quest for needed lifeblood is remarkable and still controversial. Starting in the early 20th century, regional leaders embarked on a relentless search for imported water from faraway places. The Owens Valley in the eastern Sierra Nevada, the Colorado River, and Northern California. The saga began with the city of Los Angeles and its still contested water quest. L.A. Water Chief William Mulholland pioneered the development of imported water supplies from the distant and rural Owens Valley. Completed in 1913, the 233-mile-long Los Angeles aqueduct would furnish water sufficient for a city of 2 million residents. In the late 1920s, Los Angeles and neighboring communities such as Pasadena 
would play crucial leadership roles in a bold experiment in regional cooperation. The Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, bringing fresh supplies of Colorado River water needed to fuel not just city, but region-wide growth. Nearly all of urbanizing Southern California would join the Met family to secure this essential elixir. From its inception, Southern California's water quest has been mired in invective and controversy. Early critics of LA's Owens Valley Aqueduct charged that it was a nefarious and secretive scheme by LA's greedy land barons and conniving water officials to enrich themselves through secret purchases of San Fernando Valley land made valuable by water while supposedly ruining Owens Valley farmers through water diversions to Los Angeles. The conventional wisdom is fictively encapsulated in Chinatown. Roman Polanski's famed 1974 film noir depicting an incestuous developer-driven water conspiracy. Chinatown is the fecund offspring rather than parent of a long line of LA water conspiracy theories dating back to the early 20th century. The film imaginatively encodes the popular understanding of how Los Angeles and indeed Southern California grew large and mighty. Claiming to draw lessons, policymakers and scholars have creatively used the film to try to shape the water policy debate in California and the West, particularly over agriculture to urban water transfers. Despite accumulating scholarship to the contrary, the noir legend stubbornly refuses to die. To this day, Los Angeles' so-called rape of the Owens Valley haunts LA's Department of Water and Power. The specter also haunts the Metropolitan Water District as a Chinatown-like shadow conspiracy of LA water imperialism and its reigning private developers. But is Chinatown an adequate metaphor or adequate appropriate metaphor or adequate explanation for Southern California's water development? Has Southern California's search for new water supplies been a tawdry tale of secret backroom deals profiting developers and despoiling communities and the environment? In the pages of this book, I offer an alternative account based upon an extensive analysis of available archives supplemented by interviews of the Southern California water story that challenges the major themes of the film. I focus on the region's largest and most significant water agency, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Today, this unheralded organization is arguably the nation's and even the world's biggest and most important public water agency. I hope to shed new light on this remarkable and little understood public institution and its strategies and choices aimed at securing a reliable and safe water supply in an environmentally and economically responsible manner for one of the world's great regional economies. Celebrating its 75th anniversary in 2003, MWD remains a dynamic cog in the region's still prodigious growth machine. 
But over the years, its roles in the economy and environment have grown more nuanced and balanced. Once castigated as an environmentally despoiling handmaiden of growth and sprawl, Metropolitan is now hailed by many as a global leader in regional resource management and environmental stewardship. MWD has also navigated, albeit with considerable difficulty, the uneasy partnership and rivalry between Los Angeles and San Diego, the nation's second largest and seventh biggest cities, with L.A. historically holding greater political power and water rights. Not surprisingly, Metropolitan's institutional arrangements, rules, and policies have been hotly contested terrain for competing urban, business, environmental, water, and agricultural interests. Fierce battles have been fought publicly in the MWD boardroom, in state and federal legislatures, regulatory agencies, the courts, and going back to 1931, the ballot box. Metropolitan's public history is an epic featuring both cooperation and conflict. In the early years, this extraordinary regional partnership financed and built the Colorado River Aqueduct, annexed most of Southern California into its service territory, and provided vital, albeit belated, support for the 1960s-era state water project. More recently, with water reliability growing uncertain, conflict has overshadowed cooperation. Since 1990, there have been mounting challenges and battles. San Diego's drive for water independence from MWD in Los Angeles, fierce fights over the Colorado River and fragile Bay Delta ecosystem in Northern California, and the global rise of water markets and privatization. Today, Metropolitan is faced, as always, with still burgeoning population growth adding by 2025 in its service territory, the equivalent of another city of Los Angeles, 4 million people, and city of San Diego, 1.3 million residents, to Southern California in the face of adverse climate changes, a lengthy drought, mounting water quality challenges, and new post 9-11 security concerns. In response, Metropolitan has devised innovative new formulas for water reliability, quality, financing, safety, and governance, all of which are being closely scrutinized by national and even global observers. Beyond Chinatown offers a fresh appraisal of Metropolitan's 75-year-plus record and legacy. The Met supporters deem it a magnificent institution providing responsible and reliable water, water stewardship under challenging circumstances. Its detractors, and there are some here in San Diego, still depicted as a pawn of L.A. water imperialism and pro-growth interests and even threatening to become an inefficient and unreliable water provider. Is MWD an enterprising and effective public agency and water guarantor or merely a Chinatown-style hidden government, just another, albeit grandiose, special district captured by entrenched interests with enfeebled ability to meet the region's water needs. These questions have national and international 
and not merely regional import. As the 21st century begins, water conflicts spawned by relentless urban growth and climate change are erupting across the United States and on other continents. In a now global search for effective water formulas and institutional arrangements, Southern California's historic experiment in cooperative regional water provision, building an urban civilization in a hostile semi-desert environment, and promising to secure its water future deserves the most careful scrutiny. The book goes from past, from prehistory of MWD to the future. We look at the movie Chinatown, compare it with scholarship, recent scholarship in terms of what Los Angeles did or didn't do in the Owens Valley, we look at the early years of MWD and particularly the contentious relationship between Los Angeles and San Diego, asking the question, who has paid and who has benefited? Uh, we then segue from the past into the major water food fights, the conflicts of the last 10 years, San Diego's drive for water independence, the Imperial Valley water deal being sort of at the center of that effort, we look at the challenges to Southern California's imported water supplies, putting the Colorado River, California's allotment, on a diet, uh, the 4.4 plan. Look at attempts to fix the, the fragile Bay Delta ecosystem in Northern California. And then the challenges that are posed to public agencies, frequently they act like monopolists, by water markets, transfers, and a worldwide trend towards water privatization. Now, I segue to the end of the book, looking towards the future. How well is MWD preparing for our water future in an environment fraught with even greater uncertainties? Hopefully the past will prove prologue to the future. Historically, MWD and its 26 member agencies have compiled a remarkable track record of reliable and affordable water provision. In the early years, this entailed the creation of a vast aqueduct empire, the Los Angeles Aqueduct System and the Colorado and California Aqueducts, bringing imported water to Southern California. Yet the era of dams and ditches dramatically ended at least up until today, until the, until the first levee break in the Central Valley, dramatically ended in 1982 with the defeat of Peripheral Canal. Is this region's leading water agency adequately preparing for the future? The 21st century challenges appear daunting. For starters, as I mentioned, the region is posed to add another, I don't know where we're going to put them, five to six million new residents. Even with greater conservation efforts, and I'm going to talk about conservation, regional water demand is likely to grow. At the same time, Mother Nature may prove a most uncooperative ally. Recent studies suggest that global warming could reduce the Sierra Nevada snowpack by nearly 90% by the end of this century. Further, droughts such as 1987 to 1992 and 2000 to 2004 could be harbingers to mega droughts lasting 10 to 15 years 
and depleting our water supplies and available reserves. The region has had three such mega droughts in the past 400 years and more likely to come. And man has compounded nature's threats with a, in quotes, complicated, overtaxed, and aging water infrastructure. A Katrina-like flood event or major earthquake in the Delta region could easily overwhelm a jerry-built levee system threatening the water supply for 20 million Californians, including in the Bay Area. We may finally make common water cause if that threat occurs with Northern California. And I always like it, just a brief aside, that at least San Franciscans have always believed that God, she intended water to flow east to west, from Hetch Hetchy to San Francisco, but not north to south. (laughs) Are Southern California's water agencies like MWD up to the task of guaranteeing supply reliability. I'm going to focus on supply reliability. We can talk about water quality issues uh, and other concerns uh, a little bit later. And I'm going to look specifically at MWD's water planning the last 10 years. It's called the Integrated Resources Plan, developed in 1996, updated in 2004. Unlike the movie Chinatown, featuring secret backroom deals, the IRP, as it's called, was fashioned with broad stakeholder participation in a variety of public forums. Between 1993 and 2004, the stakeholders included the MWD Board of Directors, its 26 member agencies, retail water agencies, groundwater managers, environmental groups, which play an increasingly important role in MWD deliberations, community leaders, and business and industry representatives. This involved 12 board meetings and workshops, three regional assemblies, six public forums, and scores and scores of technical meetings. Chinatown, indeed. Let's look at the Integrated Resources Plan. What is it about? It's about diversifying our water portfolio. We can't live on imported water, at least at the rate that we have in the past, much longer. In 1995, right before this planning process began, nearly 60% of the water consumed in Southern California came from the State Water Project and the Colorado River imported water. Those systems, those supplies, you know, cannot carry us into the future, both because we're going to be adding, most likely, millions of new residents, and because there are challenges and threats to both of those systems, the Colorado River and the State Rotter Project. So, The name of the game is diversifying water supplies and flexibility in investments and operations. Look, the Integrated Resources Plan emphasizes reliability, water quality, and affordability. There's always a price to pay. And it does it with an explicit recognition of the constraints 
on water planning and supplies, environmental, political, and institutional. And we are moving into a new era in which the environment is a legitimate claimant on water. We didn't do that for a long, long time. But it has joined the list of key stakeholders and recipients of very, very scarce resources. Now, the diversification strategy at MWD has, not like Gaul, we'll have to add one, four parts. Job number one, and just repeat this every night, it's conservation, it's demand management, it's using what we have far more efficiently than we've done in the future. We're finally realizing that half of the potable, i.e. drinking water used in Southern California, is on landscaping, those wonderful green lawns. We're now, they're now pushing at MWD what they call the, I call it xeriscaping, going back to dry, dry environmental landscaping. It's called the California-friendly landscaping, but it's basically learning to use less water out of doors, planting the kinds of shrubs, right, that are low dosage, low utilization in terms of water. MWD and its member agencies now treat conservation as a supply source. They consider it part of the supply equation. And they offer incentives to their member agencies based on avoided costs. The thing is, water agencies are like all other public organizations. They like a revenue stream. And when something like conservation cuts down on water utilization and therefore the revenue stream, it's a little harder for them to do the right thing. Well, MWD is trying to sweeten the deal with incentives, right, so that their, their financial losses are minimized by encouraging conservation and not only conservation, recycling programs. We in Southern California have got to get over the prejudice against what we quaintly call here in San Diego, toilet to tap. Look, if you drink water out of the tap, you're already participants in one of the greatest toilet to tap experiments the world has ever seen. It's called the Colorado River. There are 1,600 dumping permits by public agencies and businesses onto the Colorado today. And we seem to do a fairly decent job of treating it. But we have to learn to use reclaimed water much better. So, demand management. Job number two, assuring the reliability of existing supplies. Trying to stabilize the Colorado River supply and in terms of the Bay Delta, there are a couple of initiatives up there that need to be supported. One is the science program. The other is ecosystem restoration. Bringing peace to the Colorado River. Look, we were ordered by the Supreme Court in 1963. It took a while for the reality to set in. The classic case, Arizona v. California 
to reduce our intake of Colorado River water in Southern Cali- in California, Southern California Water Agencies, from about 5.2, 5.3 million acre feet. An acre foot is the metric in the water industry. It's enough, basically, it's one acre, one foot high. It's enough, basically, in terms of annual usage, two urban families of four. We have to go from over 5 million down to 4.4 million. We've also got in the northern part of the state, in the Bay Delta, pressing issues around ecosystem restoration. Uh, There are groundbreaking approaches now being developed to ecosystem enhancement, such as diversion dam removals and new fish ladders and screens, such as at Butte and Battle Creeks. We're creating in that area environmental water accounts. These are assets that are protecting environmental interests. They are a legitimate claimant on water. And, of course, we have to do something about the levee system up there. And it's not only an issue in terms of thirsty farmers and urban customers in the Central Valley in Southern California. It also has to do with a very fragile ecosystem that is unsustainable. One of the leading authorities on the state of the levees, Professor Jeffrey Mount at Davis, has basically said it's not a question of if the levees will fail. It's just a question of when. And the $3 billion that we have is merely a down payment on a 7 to $10 billion restoration project. Job number three, assuring water for regional storage. We have to move, in a sense, right to have a ready reserve account. Today, MWD and its member agencies have 10 times the water in terms of available storage. A lot of it is groundwater. It's dry year contracts with agricultural agencies that have a lot more water than uh, urban agencies do. But we have 10 times more available than we did 10 years ago. And then finally, job number four, providing affordable increases in supply. If we're going to increase the supply, we have to do it in a cost-efficient and also environmentally friendly manner. Water transfers and exchanges are part of that, but we also need to face the issues, the environmental, the economic and cost issues around the magic bullets down here in San Diego, such as desalination, taking seawater and turning it into drinking water. To conclude, MWD and its member agencies are now in the business of planning for uncertainty. Population, climate change, endangered species, a whole set of uncertainties and challenges in terms of Southern California's water supply. We're moving, and hopefully will move by 2030, to a situation where only 25% dependent upon the aqueduct empire, the traditional imported supplies. And we're much better at using local supplies, including with conservation and reclamation and groundwater storage. Now, I can't say for sure whether we are fully prepared to meet all of the challenges and uncertainties to guarantee this region's 21st century water future. 
But I do believe that the kind of planning that MWD and its member agencies are involved in means that we are well launched and hopefully headed in the right direction. Thank you very much.